0: You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs.
1: Hello and welcome to The Good GP. Today on the podcast, it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor John Emery from the University of Melbourne. Welcome, John.
0: Thanks, Tim. Nice to be with you.
1: John, it's a really interesting episode today. We're talking about the detection of of lung cancer and you've just completed a bit of academic work on detection of lung cancer and the presentation of lung cancer. Tell us a little bit more about your work before we get started.
0: So I'm a GP by background and have been working as an academic GP for a number of years with a particular interest in cancer prevention and early detection of cancer and how GPs play a really important role in those particular aspects of uh, cancer control.
1: Fantastic. Well, John, let's talk about lung cancer because for perhaps a lot of us, lung cancer has changed in the demographics over time. So how common is lung cancer and why is it a diagnostic challenge for for GPs in particular?
0: So in Australia, it's still a common cancer. It's the fifth commonest cancer. Uh, in Australia. Last year, there were nearly 13,000 people diagnosed with it. It's still the biggest cause of cancer deaths in Australia and that's true for many other developed countries that lung cancer remains a major cause of cancer deaths and that's mainly because it presents at a relatively late stage of diagnosis by which time curative treatment is often not an option. It's a diagnostic challenge for general practice in particular because it often presents with fairly insidious symptoms and common symptoms that of course have much more common benign explanations such as a cough or shortness of breath so it it doesn't have many really nice highly predictive red flag symptoms hemoptysis of course is the sort of classic red flag symptom but in general practice even somebody presenting with with hemoptysis only has about a five percent chance of actually being due to a a lung cancer and that's even in people who who are current smokers so it presents often symptomatically but with these subtle combinations of symptoms, and that's often what GPs need to be on the lookout for, combinations of cough and weight loss or persistent cough that is just not going away as you would expect. There are some other features that we might talk about a bit later that GPs can do to sort of think about the diagnosis earlier as well. But it it remains a challenge diagnostically, and often patients present having had symptoms for some time as well. And that's another part of the challenge.
1: Yeah, it really is a hard one as a GP because it's not uncommon, but it's mixed in with those quite common symptoms. And as you say, often the approach as a GP to those symptoms is to sort of watch and see how they go. So it's hard because we're seeing these patients invariably or often at an early stage of disease, but picking them up early is really critical, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's right. We know that early detection... Can improve outcomes. Obviously, the strongest evidence of is, that is from some of the screening trials, which we'll go on to talk about, I'm sure. But even in uh, patients who present symptomatically, there is still the op- the opportunity to diagnose that at an earlier stage and improve outcomes. It's all about how we try and pick up those cancers before it sort of becomes stage 3 or stage 4 disease by which time treatment is usually palliative and and certainly curative treatment is not is not really an option so even though there are new treatments that are improving prognosis to some extent so five-year survival has improved in recent times. It's still only at about uh, 17% five-year survival in Australia.
1: Just thinking around the the demographics of lung cancer, because many of us would have learnt about lung cancer years and decades ago, the population effect of smoking change has affected lung cancer as well in some ways, hasn't it?
0: That's right. I mean, smoking is still obviously the biggest and most important risk factor, as well as age. And so it continues to be predominantly a condition in older people who, are either current or former smokers, the patterns of lung cancer are changing. It's becoming less common in men because they started giving up smoking earlier than women. And so the patterns of smoking uptake and then cessation between men and women, we're seeing a reduction in lung cancer incidence in men while it's still rising in women because of those historic patterns of smoking. We're also in Australia, though, seeing a a growing number of lung cancers in in never smokers. And particularly, it seems to be a a sort of subgroup of cancers that may be biologically different, that are are more common in Asian women who are never smokers. And so certainly in Australia, where we have quite a large proportion of people with Asian background, this is an increasingly important sort of new phenomenon of uh, lung cancers in people who you wouldn't expect to see them in. So never smoking Asian women. There are lots of theories as to why this may be. Some of it may be to do with uh, exposures through uh, cooking and so on, but it's still not really fully known why this is. So they're an important group to also think about in people with symptoms that may be due to lung cancer, but don't dismiss them even if they've never smoked, particularly, in, as I say, in Asian women.
1: Yeah, that's very helpful. I I don't think a lot of us think first line about about the, the non-smoker with cancer. So it, it, that's really helpful information. Let's talk about lung cancer screening, which is a, a complex and, and difficult discussion. What are the recommendations for lung cancer screening in the general population? And what's the role for newer imaging tests such as low-dose CT and PET scanning?
0: So in, in terms of the general population, there is no recommendation for any form of lung cancer screening. The the really interesting new evidence that arose from a very large CT screening trial run in the US has sort of generated a lot of interest in the role of low-dose CT in people who are at increased risk of lung cancer. So this was published a few years ago now. It was a very large trial of people who were um, aged over 55 and had at least a 30-pack year history of smoking. So they could have given up smoking up to 15 years before, but they were still at significantly increased risk of lung cancer. And they were offered annual low-dose CTs compared with chest x-rays. And what that found was a a 20% uh, reduction, relative risk reduction in dying from lung cancer, which is really a, a very large effect and really the only thing that has been shown to have such a big effect in terms of early diagnosis and impact on mortality. There are downsides with that. There are a lot of false positives. So you end up picking lots of nodules through CT scans that re- then require further follow-up, maybe through further scans, but also through biopsies. And that's part of the downside of CT screening is are all these false positives and the need for ongoing follow-up or lung biopsies. To determine the benign or malignant nature of those nodules. So, in Australia, it is not currently uh, recommended uh, within national guidelines, even in this high risk population. That's mainly on the basis of issues of cost effectiveness. So, there was a large cost effectiveness analysis that was run to inform the lung cancer screening committee, essentially, in Australia. And it cost around about $230,000 per quality, which was deemed uh, within the current context of Australia not to be a cost effective intervention. It is different, and there is a, another large European CT trial that is expected to report this year, which again, the preliminary results were presented at a conference last year, which has confirmed this mortality benefit. And in the US, CT screening is already uh, recommended, again, in a high-risk population. That's in the context where health economics is not really accounted for as much. In the UK, there are pilot programs being rolled out of offering CT screening. The evidence is being interpreted in slightly different ways internationally. It's certainly an effective strategy in detecting lung cancers early, and through that, you do see this mortality reduction but there are, of course, these downsides. So it's a complex field. I know certainly within Australia, there are a number of radiology clinics who have been promoting this as an option, uh, despite the fact that it's not currently recommended through national guidelines.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting area. And you've you've really comprehensively discussed all the issues at play. You know, there is this that's, that's great at picking up or improves the, the detection, the screening detection of cancer, but the the cost is something that's probably needs, needs to be watched. And, you know, perhaps that's something that's going to change over time as the cost of technology and accuracy of technology improves as well.
0: I think that's right. And the other interesting thing that, from a research point of view, is they're trying to look at better ways of working out which of the nodules are the ones that actually are potentially significant so trying to reduce this burden of follow up of the false positives and also trying to better refine the, the screening population so you better select patients who are most at risk of lung cancer so those these are sort of two of the approaches where there's more work going on at the moment to sort of improve the cost effectiveness of of screening the other side i suppose that has been the big argument that has also been made from a public health point of view is that we would still be better to be investing in trying to reduce rates of smoking which even though in Australia our smoking rates have coming down year on year it is still a very preventable disease and so there's still a big role obviously from a primary care point of view, to be supporting smokers to try and give up as a major approach to reducing lung cancer mortality as well.
1: I think that's a great point. And thinking about it from the GP's point of view and for for those GPs listening, I mean, it does highlight the importance of GPs, you know, asking about smoking and documenting smoking. Uh, perhaps more more so in the context of documenting the pack year history of smoking mm. as well, because a lot of GPs would, would perhaps document that a patient's a smoker or an ex-smoker, but they wouldn't necessarily document that sort of pack year history.
0: That's right. And uh, what we'd really like in our software is, is something that would you know, allow us to calculate that pack year history very well. But as you say, we're not terribly good at documenting dates of cessation, uh, that that makes it slightly harder to re-identify the, that higher-risk population. And also, often we'll record quit attempts, but not necessarily how long they've been successful for.
1: Yeah, that, that's the problem I get with my patients. I, I think I have some patients who've got about 20 dates of cessation, John, <laughs>
0: Yes, it's a difficult thing to give up long term for a lot of patients. And that's part of the challenge.
1: So I think we've kind of answered the next question, which is who is higher risk of lung cancer? We're, we're looking at uh, heavy smokers over a long period of time, increasingly so women. And I guess the other thing that we perhaps don't think about it is the older patients. That's
0: right. This is definitely like many cancers, uh, age is a major risk factor. And that's why again, in the screening trials, they specifically didn't start offering screening until people hit the age of 55, at which point even in smokers is when you start to see the increase in incidence. Of course, it does rarely occur in younger people, but from a sort of screening population point of view, where you're trying to identify a population most at risk, then then age is an important determinant. And as age goes up, uh, lung cancer risk goes up as well.
1: The next question is an area a real area of expertise
0: for you. What can we be doing to improve lung cancer detection as GPs? So, obviously, in the absence of offering CT screening, as a, and we, that we've discussed, there are other important approaches that we can be taking. Some of the work that we've been interested in is thinking about potential delays to diagnosis that occur, uh, both from a patient point of view and a GP and GP system point of view. So we've been interested in thinking about how patients interpret their symptoms, and particularly, again, in these populations who are at higher risk of lung cancer. And we know there's very good evidence that people have often had symptoms for a number of months before they actually go and see their GP. And they often find there are good reasons for that. There's quite a lot of stigma about in this population because of their smoking history, and that's a, that is that is an important barrier to going to talk to a doctor. There's a limited awareness around the symptoms of lung cancer amongst this population who often have low health literacy as well. In the Australian setting, cost can also be a barrier to uh, seeking help and fear of cancer as well. So there are a number of barriers to as to why patients don't go and see their GP when they're developing symptoms. The other thing is these are often people who've got chronic respiratory illness already, and so already have respiratory symptoms. So the, their comorbidities often mask the, the newly developing symptoms of lung cancer. And so patients will blame their existing respiratory illness to their new symptoms. So we've been doing some work of a uh, an intervention that could be delivered by practice nurses, which is, it's, it's a sort of brief behavioral intervention, talking through a self-help manual in patients, again, who are at high risk of lung cancer. These were people who had at least 20 pack years of smoking history. And so they were talked through this self-help manual to raise awareness and the salience of their symptoms of lung cancer, what to look out for, try and reduce the stigma of going to see their doctor, and these sort of plan-do patterns of if they develop certain symptoms, then how would they respond. So all in an attempt to try and Promote earlier presentation in this high-risk population. So we ran this as a randomised controlled trial in 550 patients in both WA and Victoria, and showed that you can significantly increase rates of consulting just about respiratory symptoms by 40%. So this was an effective way of getting people to present when they develop respiratory symptoms. As and so this is potentially an approach to reducing delays in lung cancer detection at that point of of the patient and the way they monitor their symptoms. We also know that, as we've talked before, it can be challenging to detect symptomatic presentations of lung cancer early. Some other work that we previously published had showed that a large proportion of patients with a lung cancer diagnosis have had multiple visits to their GP before they were eventually referred on or investigated. And again, that talks to the challenges of the subtleness of symptoms, particularly in patients who've got chronic respiratory illness already, and recognising the importance of combinations of symptoms, particularly subtle weight loss, loss of appetite, in combination with an ongoing or worsening cough or worsening shortness of breath. One of the other interesting things that is only recently coming out as an as an important marker of a possible diagnosis of lung cancer is a raised platelet count. Mm. And so platelets are an interesting thing. Raised platelet count is coming out as a predictor of a number of cancers in primary care. So if you see somebody with a raised platelet count, and particularly if they're one of these people who may be at increased risk of lung cancer, then it's worth thinking about whether there's been any recent changes in their respiratory symptoms, because that can actually be an indicator of a lung cancer diagnosis.
1: Well, it's absolutely fascinating, John. There's, there's a number of points there. I mean, firstly, congratulations on your work. You know what I really like about it is that you've you've thought about an intervention that will fit into the existing structure of general practice rather than trying to sort of retrofit a general practice around the intervention, which is is great. We're talking about a, a sort of inventory that allows us to accurately pick people who might be higher risk of of significant or lung cancer, but also other significant respiratory disease. <laughs> and detect disease earlier, which is great. For GPs, it's it's wonderful because I guess as GPs, we're constantly being asked to adapt to other people's systems rather
0: than the other way around. Yeah, that's right. I have to say that this was an intervention that was originally developed by some colleagues of mine in, in Aberdeen. So Peter Murchie and Neil Camber, who are also at GP academics. And I think hopefully, although I know GP academics are seen as a bit ivory tower we hopefully still understand what it is to work in general practice and how you try and develop interventions that will fit within the system and the workflow of general practice because as you say there's lots of things that gps are told they could be doing but that just don't fit very well within the workflow of general practice
1: could you see this sort of rolling out into
0: uh, mainstream australian general practice anytime soon Well, we would like to. As always, when you produce this research evidence, there are inevitably some caveats, but we do think it's something that is implementable Uh, in the context of practice nurse checks for uh, respiratory health. So part of this was a part of the intervention was also spirometry, which is an important part of case finding for COPD, again, in this sort of higher risk population. So I think it would fit within that context of a sort of chronic disease check for respiratory health. Ultimately, you could imagine, particularly in certain health settings where CT screening is another funded option, that you would be assessing risk of lung cancer. There will be some people who are at very high risk who might be offered a CT scan. There'll be another group who could be offered this more behavioural approach, the the chest intervention, as we called it, because they don't meet the sort of criteria for CT screening. In Australia, it's it's all that we really have to offer in the absence of uh, CT screening being recommended. But it's still, I think, potentially a relatively low-cost intervention that could be readily adopted in general practice by practice nurses. If the practice sees the benefit of this sort of approach to chronic disease health and uh, management, and particularly focused around respiratory disease.
1: And if practices are interested, is
0: there some way they can search for the information? The trial itself was published in Thorax. It's an open access journal. The paper is available as open access. And if there's particular interest, then they can certainly contact me for more details around the actual self-help manual that we developed as part of the trial. Fantastic.
1: Look, we'll just keep moving on because there's a couple more, a few more controversial questions. Uh, My question's around chest X-ray, which still remains quite a uh, frequently performed investigation in general practice. What role does chest x-ray have in lung cancer diagnosis?
0: It certainly has been shown to have no role at all in screening. That's the important thing. There were a number of trials in the past uh, where chest x-rays have been used as a screening test in asymptomatic populations and found to have no benefit at all. It, It really just isn't sensitive enough. And that's what then led on, of course, to the CT screening trials. However, in symptomatic patients, and that's, you know, the bulk of the patients that we're going to see in how lung cancer is diagnosed, chest x-ray is still the first test of choice in the assessment of approval with these symptoms that most of the time are obviously not going to be due to lung cancer, but could be. So if there are concerns about a possible diagnosis of lung cancer based on the symptoms, then chest x-ray is the first test to order. There are, of course, it's not a perfect test, and particularly early cancers, small cancers may not be detected with chest X-ray. And so you still need to have this high index of suspicion and ensure that you follow up patients if they've had a negative chest X-ray, because you may need to repeat that chest X-ray if you have a very high index of suspicion you may want to go onto a CT scan straight away. There are some quite good published algorithms around this for general practice within Australia. So Cancer Australia have this quite nice algorithm around the use of chest X-ray and and then subsequent use of CT as a follow-up test, even in the presence of ongoing symptoms or or higher level of suspicion. So I don't think we should be abandoning chest X-ray altogether yet. It still has an important role It will detect a lot of lung cancers as they present symptomatically, but you still do need this high index of suspicion and the need to sort of safety net and follow up patients in the context of ongoing symptoms and maybe either repeat the chest x-ray or go on to do a CT. Hmm.
1: So John, last question. Are we winning uh, in the journey of improving lung cancer detection, do you think, over time?
0: Not yet in terms of detection. I think there hasn't been much shift in the sort of stage of lung cancer detection yet. So there's much more work to be done, whether that's on, as we've talked about, population strategies to raise awareness of symptoms and to try and get people to present sooner, and then for earlier investigation of those symptoms in general practice, that's one approach. And then, of course, there's the CT screening approach. But there's still quite a lot of work to be done on how we detect it earlier. The improvements that we have seen thus far in terms of a gradual improvement in prognosis. So five-year survival has improved. It's, as I say, it's now up to about 17 18% in Australia. That is probably due to better treatments. There's some really interesting new therapies that have been developed for lung cancer, both targeted therapies and immunotherapy, which is probably contributing to some of the improvements in survival. But ultimately, I think that the big things remain around smoking cessation. Early detection is still a key issue and there's much more work being done to look for new biomarkers so there's some really interesting work being done on a breath test that might pick up markers of lung cancer earlier that might have fewer challenges than ct screening for example and then there are also blood-based biomarkers there's a a large trial that is about to report from scotland of a blood-based marker for lung cancer with subsequent follow-up of a ct so there's a lot of interest still in how we detect lung cancer earlier And some of which I think will flow on eventually into regular general practice in the sort of next decade or two. So early detection remains a big issue, even though there are small improvements in survival as a result of some of the advances in treatment as well. John,
1: that's just been an absolutely excellent update for GPs on lung cancer detection. So thank you so much. But also thank you for the great work you're doing in general practice research. It's just so good to see really good general practice research making a difference and fitting in, as we say, to to the work lives of GPs out there. So congratulations.
0: Well, thanks very much, Tim. Thanks for your interest in our work. Thanks,
1: John.